in the resurrection, um, everything changes. I think that means the height of my pulpit. Because <laughs> now I'm very uncomfortable because everything is far too close to me and I can't rest my hands in a comfortable spot. So, um, And the sun is in a great place for me to have a migraine. So if you remember that, pray. <laughs> okay, uh, there's more today. We're in Acts 17. I was uh, going to preach from uh, Romans 6 and changed my mind. Uh, we're actually going to pick up uh, in 29, although the main passage is going to be, uh, I'm going to talk about 30 and 31. Being then God off, God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. Let's pray. Uh, Father, times have not changed in the sense that people aren't sure what to make of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, Father, uh, be with us this morning, for uh, most of us, anyway, uh, believe, indeed, he has risen from the dead. Be with us as we uh, spend a little time in this passage uh, recognizing some of the implications of that glorious truth that we might have hope to sustain us in times of trouble. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the Heidelberg Catechism, we ask that question about what benefit does the resurrection have to us? And uh, the, the catechism laid out three particular reasons why. Um, when we talk about the atonement, A.A. A. Hodge has made the, uh, the statement that the, uh, the atonement is like a diamond, that it has many facets to it for us to, uh, to grasp and understand to behold the, the beauty of it, and that we cannot just focus on one facet of the, of the atonement. I think it's the same way when it comes to the resurrection. There are many facets or aspects uh, of the atonement, and sometimes we just get fixated on one, and we miss the glory and beauty of the resurrection. This morning I want to, I think, hit on what's probably one of the more neglected facets or aspects of the resurrection. The big idea this morning is that Jesus is the resurrected judge of humanity. How's that for a happy Resurrection Day sermon? Sorry, homily. Okay. Two things I want us to think about as we look at this passage. And the first is that the resurrection is really the hinge of history. A hinge on a, you know, on a door helps the door open while the wall stays in the same place. A hinge helps things open, sort of like a book, in a sense. Um, and so the resurrection, I think, really should be understood in part as a hinge of history. Everything on history turns with the death 
and resurrection of Jesus. Now, Paul here is in Athens. Uh, he's made his first missionary voyage or trip to Athens. Okay, not the, his first missionary voyage, but the first trip to Athens as an apostle. Uh, he's gone, he's, he's surveyed the land, and he's seen that there is an idol, a statue to an unknown God, and Paul decides, that's my key. And so Paul offers to explain to the curious people of Athens who this unknown God is. Now, as he notes earlier in our text, before that which we read, that the Athenians were a very religious people. Mankind is incurably religious. It's just a question of what people set their hearts upon. And so when we look at fans cheering their favorite team, they are, in a sense, being religious. When we see steadfast devotion to a discipline like science or economics at the expense of everything else, people are essentially being religious. They are worshiping something. They see that as the ultimate of their existence. The Athenians didn't want to leave any gods out. They figured there might be one we've overlooked, so we'll have the statue to an unknown god. So Paul declares this God to them. He declares in verse 24 that he is the creator and ruler of all things. He has not just made it, but he continues to rule over it. He has determined where people are to live, where they are to move, and what they are to do. However, Paul notes in sort of a gentle fashion that the world had gone astray, that it had failed to recognize him as God and Lord. And in Romans 1, we kind of see that idea that, that while everything is plain to them in general revelation, they have suppressed the truth in their unrighteousness. And so Paul gently kind of mentions this in saying that until the coming of his son, the times of ignorance God overlooked. Now, their ignorance was not an accidental sort of ignorance, but in light of Romans 1, we recognize that it was a willful ignorance. The invisible qualities of God were plain and evident to be seen, but they didn't want to see them. They were far more content with their small, safe gods. These, these gods that would not required all that much of them and who ultimately would not hold them accountable for how they live their lives. The idea of a judgment at the end of time was foreign to the Greeks. And so when Paul is going to explode all of this upon them, there is some doubt for them. It's a new concept. Calvin notes, and if you didn't, I didn't have sunglasses on, you could see, that God winked. Okay? Now, this doesn't mean literally like God just kind of gave them a big pass and said they were not going to be held accountable. It's not as if they weren't guilty. But the point is that God withheld his judgment for their rebellion since the days of Noah. I mean, we, we see in the days of Noah, of course, that, that God brings his wrath down upon all of humanity, save the one family that is Noah, his three sons, and their wives. 
contrary to the movie you may have seen. All three of them had wives. Okay? Since that point, God had withheld His judgment upon humanity. Paul talks about this in Romans 3. He says that this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. This was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And so Paul, again, is talking about this hinge of history. He used to pass over former sins, but now he's going to show his righteousness in the present time because of the atonement of Christ. He is able to justify all those who have faith in Christ. Back to Athens. Paul says, but now, okay, the hinge again appears, but now the hinge of history The days of ignorance are past. There's a new day that has dawned, which explains why Paul, the Jew, is sitting in a city full of Gentiles to proclaim a message about his God. But now he commands all men everywhere to repent. And so God's proclamation is now going forth, not only through Paul, not only through Silas and Barnabas and Peter and John and James, but it's probably untold people that were out proclaiming the message of Jesus Christ. This proclamation, Paul says, is for all men, not just some men. Everybody fits in this category. Rich or poor, this message is for them. Male or female, this message is for them. Slave or free, this message is for them. If we want to stick it into our present time, we would say things like, I don't know, gay or straight. This message is for them. This proclamation is, not, is also for people everywhere. Paul has left Jerusalem, has left Judea, has left the Middle East, and has gone into the Mediterranean. Here he's in Greece of all places. Everywhere, Africa, Asia, Europe, the Americas, Australia, even Antarctica, for those people who make their temporary residence there. It's for all people, no matter where they find themselves on this planet. No one is exempt from this proclamation and this command precisely because all have been in rebellion against him. Everybody's rebellion takes a different face. It looks different, but it's there. Okay, This is a homily. I can't go into that now. You're spared. Okay, The proclamation precisely is to repent, to change one's course, to turn around is the, the Hebrew word that is behind this, because you've been going in the wrong direction. We men have a hard time with this when we drive. We don't ask for directions. We might get lost, but we think that if we just keep driving down this road, it will eventually turn into the right road. No, we have to turn around and get back where we belong. And so repentance is that idea of turning around, but not just turning around, but turning back, returning to God himself. And so here's this command to return to the Creator 
and the Redeemer. And so even though he call, he's, he's speaking here of repentance, it's, it's an idea of that God's plan of salvation is no longer sort of centralized in Israel and all of the trappings of the worship of the people of Israel, but now it's going, it's in, going to spread through all of the earth. And so the resurrection really is a hinge between ignorant rebellion and repenting in faith. Second thing that Paul would have them and us consider. The resurrection reveals the judge of all men. Now, a reasonable question would be on the part of the Athenians, why should I repent? And so Paul offers them and us, by extension, four reasons for repentance. Three of them are summed up in this phrase, because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. And so the first reason why people are called to repentance is that a day has been fixed or established. I'm going to a wedding soon. I'm going to officiate a wedding soon. And I know this because the day has been established. It's not just, Steve, show up when you want to. I had to make plans. I've got to fly across the country. Well, actually, I have to fly down from General Assembly. But it's fixed so everyone can know when it is. Well, this day's been fixed, but only the Father knows when it is. So it's like, but unlike a wedding day. We don't know when, but God has said it. This creates a, a certain measure of uncertainty for us a measure of uncertainty that's actually a positive thing because it should move people to repent without delay. Because knowing human nature, what would we do? Procrastinate. That's what we love to do as a congregation. We, we, we are a congregation of procrastinators for the most part. That's one of our sins that just we have a hard time with. We, we put stuff off, okay? People will put off repentance until the last possible second if they knew when that second was so this day is not known precisely so that we might know that today is the day of salvation secondly that on that day he will judge the inhabited earth okay all those who must repent the whole earth is going to be judged. And this judgment, the third thing, will be righteous. We will judge it in righteousness. So everyone's going to be accountable for what they've done and for what they've said, for what they've thought, and what they've wanted. Everyone will be accountable and it will be in righteous, righteousness, meaning it's going to be according to God's standard, not our own standard. Would it be great if we got judged according to our own standard? We might have a chance. <laughs> we Maybe. No. <laughs> I remember the things I said, I would, how I would live when I was a teenager. <sighs> I broke all those in like three years. We, we just can't do that. We can't even keep our own standards. We break them, much less... His. 
But the idea of righteousness is also that there will be no mistakes. There will be no miscarriages of justice. There will be no one left standing, you got it wrong. Anyone who watched Wisconsin versus Kentucky yesterday knows the frustration. Even if you're not rooting for a particular team of when the judge or the ref gets it wrong. It was a game filled with really bad calls, especially one where they actually looked at the replay, saw one player whack another in the throat, and didn't assess a foul. There'll be no miscarriages of justice on the day that God is appointed to judge the earth in righteousness. Fourthly, it is by a man whom God has appointed. Meaning, he has appointed the judge. Those of you who don't know, we're engaged in a lawsuit. It was not one of our own desire or making, but was foisted upon us, so to speak. And there's a judge who has been appointed, who will sit and hear all the evidence and sift through it. God did not leave the judging of these matters for every person up to or the random call, but he has appointed a particular person who will judge us in righteousness. How can we know this? Paul anticipates their question, and he pronounces what is unthinkable to these Greeks. He has given assurance which can also mean proof or evidence. He has given proof or evidence to all by raising him, this appointed one, from the dead. Jesus' resurrection from the dead establishes him, proves that he is the appointed judge. Paul is consistent in this. For 2 Timothy 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, repro- reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. And so Paul there puts forth Jesus again as the judge of the living and the dead. In Acts 10, Paul says that he, God, commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that he is the one appointed by God to be the judge of the living and the dead. John 5. The Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. And so, biblically, we understand that He is the the Son of Man from Daniel. That He is the one to whom the kingdom is going to be given and that He is the one who will sit in judgment upon the nations as a whole and upon every person who's lived and died. 
And Paul here to the Athenians says that the proof is the resurrection because he has come back from the dead. He has been bestowed with glory and with honor by God the Father, the Creator. And so we either repent, embracing Him as Redeemer, or or we stand before Him as righteous judge who knows every way in which we have gone astray. That's part of why Tim Keller writes this. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't rise from the dead, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether or not you like his teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. Sometimes we get so caught up in whether or not we like what he said. People will embrace, well, I can go with Jesus this far, but I have a problem with Jesus going this way. But you know what? If he's risen from the dead, your opinion doesn't matter. His opinion is the one that matters. If he is risen from the dead, our autonomy, our self-law, needs to go out the window. Because he is God indeed. And like Job at the end, we should just shut our mouths. The resurrection is very important. Without it, we might as well just eat, drink, and be merry. Without the resurrection, we don't have to listen to Jesus. He's just another teacher just from a long time ago and you can pick and choose i i like the golden rule but i don't like what jesus says about divorce or whatever but if he's risen from the dead he's not just another teacher he indeed is lord and god So the days of ignorance of God passing over sins have gone. The resurrection of Jesus requires a response of repentance due to our rebellion. Without such repentance, people should expect righteous judgment, which means condemnation, no matter what form their particular rebellion took. It could be a pleasant rebellion, a sweet, nice, kind sort of rebellion. But it's rebellion nonetheless. Now for those who have repented, this offers hope. Because it means that Christ will bring into account all who have harmed their people. And so uh, our brothers and sisters in Kenya, for instance, they mourn with hope because they know that while the government may not take care of those who slaughtered their children, God will deal with it. One day, all shall stand before Jesus and give an account. That is but one facet, but a very important facet of the resurrection 
of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, in a sense, this is a double-edged sword. Because on the one hand, it, it's scary beyond belief that if we are not clothed in Jesus and we stand in our own corrupted clothing of sin and rebellion, we are in deep trouble. But if we stand in Christ's, we have such great hope, not only of being declared righteous, but also of being vindicated. The hope of seeing those who have sought to destroy us held accountable. And so, Father, you know what each person here needs to hear, whether they need to tremble or they need to rejoice. And so work by the Spirit to produce that which is necessary for them. In Jesus' name, amen.